All right, good morning, Story Fam. How are we doing? Y'all okay? All right, all right. I'm glad you're here today. Welcome to the story, especially you newcomers. If you're here for the first time, maybe somebody dragged you to church with them today on this holiday weekend, uh, and you maybe weren't super happy about it. I hope that you find the story to be a, a loving, warm place to uh, ask your questions about God, to dig a little deeper, and make some new friends. Whether you're joining us here in person in Houston's beautiful museum district, whether you're in person over at Timber Grove in the Heights here in Houston with your new summer worship schedule kicking in, 10 a.m.s uh, throughout uh, the rest of the summer. Um, we love you all at Timber Grove, and thank you for being a part of the story today. Or if you're joining us online, maybe you're traveling, or maybe this is your campus. The online campus is your worship experience every week um, via Facebook or YouTube or the story.church. We're really glad you're a part of the story today as well. All right. As always, uh, when I get to teach, I'm just uh, super honored and humbled to, to get to share a message today, and, uh, and especially this message. It's a timely one for us today as we get ready for our barbecues and our uh, big spreads tomorrow in celebration of our great country, um, and in addition to blowing things up and stuff like that that we'll do tomorrow, we're all probably going to eat a little too much, so today... As part of our uh, series on the seven deadly sins, we're talking about gluttony. So <laughs> you're welcome. Uh, it's, it's probably going to surprise you, though, the angle that we uh, take, the direction that we go with this one, so y'all don't check out yet. All right, we're going we're gonna to make some sense out of gluttony on this 4th of July weekend. Um, this is part four of seven. Um, the reason we're looking at the seven deadly sins even though they're not in the Bible as a list, right? So the Bible doesn't say these are the seven deadly ones. Um, it is an old, ancient, lasting Christian teaching about um, some sins being more dangerous than others. And uh, in the, like the four, 400s uh, AD, Christian leaders in Jerusalem were like, some sins seem to be gateway sins. You know, like how they have gateway drugs? that open you up to using other kinds of drugs? Well, there's some sins that work that way. And there's some other sins that you might be able to commit in a vacuum, like a one-off kind of a thing. But there's certain kinds of sins that can open you up to more categories of sins that you wouldn't have been tempted to commit before falling prey to these deadly sins. So that's how we ended up with this list of seven. You already talked about or learned about greed. Um, with Terry several a few weeks ago, you learned about a sloth with Pastor Kale, um, and uh, and you learned last week about wrath. I was here last week, and uh, Meredith Kirk was over at Timber Grove. So today we're talking about gluttony. It's interesting to me we talk about gluttony. I think the least, maybe sloth. We don't talk about sloth very much either. It's not a word you hear very often. More often than not, when you hear the word sloth, it's about a cute slow-moving animal in South America and in Pixar movies or something, I don't know. But, like, but, but we don't talk about gluttony or sloth very much. And the question is why, when it's so evidently uh, widespread, so to speak, in our culture. Like, it's apparently a problem for us if we're going to equate uh, gluttony with, you know, uh, eating too much and, uh, and not having control at the dinner table. Um, I think that might be one reason we don't talk about it. But I think 
I want to challenge that narrow definition of gluttony today. So don't worry. We're not just here talking about, you know, uh, people's waistlines and stuff. I think there's more going on here. And uh, what got me thinking this week was that movie from the 90s. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself here, but some of you old people remember the movie Seven. You remember Seven? Brad Pitt. Um, Morgan Freeman. Who was the killer? Nice. Kevin Spacey. We should have we seen it coming. <laughs> He's always a bad guy. Uh, anyway, if you don't follow the headlines, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But turns out life imitates art. Anyway, so um, what, what we had in this movie was this uh, serial killer who took people out one at a time um, using the seven deadly sins symbolically. So to take someone out symbolizing pride, he uh, forced a proud lawyer, an attorney, to, to remove a pound of flesh from his own body and then he bled out. And, and to symbolize the sin of sloth, he changed someone to a bed until they slowly died due to inactivity. And, um, and, and all of those other ones seem to get pretty close, at least, to embodying what the seven deadly sins really are about, except the gluttony one. And it didn't really occur to me until I started studying gluttony in depth this week that the way it was portrayed in the movie Seven just sort of missed it. Because in the movie, the point of uh, that guy being taken out with gluttony was he was forced uh, to eat. He was force-fed. I think it was spaghetti, if I'm not wrong. Anybody? Yeah? It's not my favorite scene to remember. It's pretty rough. In fact, the whole movie. Your pastor doesn't recommend it, all right? You will never hear the line, what's in the box, the same <laughs> again. <laughs> and anyway, so the, the scene is this guy is force-fed until he dies. And, and I, I understand the sentiment or the motivation behind that scene, but I think it kind of misses the point of gluttony. Because gluttony isn't being forced to do something that's bad for you. It's being free to do something that's good for you. And... Uh, to fail at self-regulation. So it's the freedom to do what's good for you, but to fail when it comes to self-control or self-denial, self-regulation, okay? So we're not talking about bad things. Even when we talk about food, we're not talking about food being a, an evil. Look, the Bible's pretty pro-food, like, with the exception of Leviticus here and there, the Bible's on board with food, even with, with feasting. The Bible says heaven's going to be a feast. And so this idea that, you know, engorging, you know, yourself once in a while to celebrate, the idea that that's inherently sinful or gluttonous, I think, misses the point. And if, if you don't hear anything else in the first part of this message, I want you to hear me saying gluttony isn't always about food or your weight or obesity. Now, now, overeating in a habitual way can be a symptom of the sin of gluttony, but not all gluttony has to do with food. And this is self-evident to me. This is sort of a silly anecdote, but it's self-evident because the most famous phrase we use in our parlance day-to-day -day with the word glutton in it has nothing to do with food. I guess I'm a glutton for 
punishment, which has nothing to do with food at all. So we clearly have it in our minds that you can be gluttonous about things that aren't on the dinner table or in the snack bar, all right? Um, so if it's not just overeating, then what is gluttony? Um, I remember um, back when I was a preacher, but I didn't believe yet. You all heard me talk about that season of my life. Um, between college and 2013, I was working as a preacher in the inner city of Kansas City, but I didn't believe the f- foundational like tenets of Christianity. I didn't trust Jesus. I certainly didn't look at the Bible as a moral guiding principle. I didn't trust it in that way. And so what really guided me in, my, in that part of my life were, were my feelings. I mean, I say that, I don't mean to say that in a pejorative way. I just mean if something didn't feel right in my gut, in my spirit, in my conscience, it wasn't something I was interested in. I would call it wrong and I would, you know, go against it. And during that time, I was a social activist. I, I took pride in standing up for groups of people that the church often excluded or alienated. And I fought on behalf as an ally of those groups. And I remember during that season of my life going to church conferences where church leaders and pastors would get together in conference centers and argue and make big decisions about the church's future and what's right and what's wrong in the eyes of the church. And I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of being at a United Methodist preacher conference, but it is a joy. Let me tell you, it was, uh, <laughs> it was not my favorite way to spend a weekend, I'll tell you. But one of the reasons is because of the apparent hypocrisy that was in the room. And one of the ways I saw that was, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding like a total jerk, so I'm just going to say it, and y'all will need to forgive me. But United Methodist preachers are not known for being the healthiest bunch. Our, our health insurance benefits were always astronomical when I was a part of that world because we were, as a group, very unhealthy. And you didn't need to see our insurance premiums to know it. You could just look around a room sometimes and see there's a lot of people who are men and women of the cloth who seem to struggle to step away from the potlucks. That's what I'm saying. So you follow me? It's like some self-control issues maybe were prevalent. And, and yet I, I perceived during that time in my life that a lot of times those same people would, would stand at microphones on conference floors and talk about why we as a church can't enable and tolerate those people, those people who do those things, who sin in those ways, who do the sins that we don't agree with, But never once did I hear anyone repenting of gluttony, even though evidently it was a struggle for us as a group. Now, I took that a step further, and I would call people out for that, and I was an angry young man. But there was something just wrong in my spirit about unrepentant gluttons casting judgment on other flavors of sinners out there. You see what I'm saying? And I think a lot of people struggle with that kind of apparent hypocrisy in the church. And I'm not saying today that we shouldn't talk about some sins because we're still committing others. I'm just saying we should be willing, first and foremost, to recognize and confess our own sins before going after other people's. And one of the sins uh, we, I believe, struggle with the most is gluttony. 
And just like all the other uh, deadly sins, the reason this list of seven is set aside is because these sins, including gluttony, can act as gateways or doorways to deeper darkness. So gluttony isn't just bad in and of itself. It opens us up to other categories of sins we wouldn't have been open to had we not been gluttonous. Y'all follow me? All right. So one reason, um, you know, I think we don't talk about gluttony in the church is uh, because we just don't quite know what we're talking about. What is gluttony? If I asked you for a definition of lust, you could probably give me one with, you know, your face all red and embarrassed because you have to define lust to your preacher. Or if I asked you for a definition of greed, yeah, you could probably define greed. What's gluttony? Surely it's not just about food or, uh, you know, your weight, right? I think, I think we can think a little more uh, deeply about this. Um, the Bible uh, goes after gluttons. We know it in this way. Proverbs 23, verses 20 and 21 says, Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor. And drowsiness clothes them in rags. Watch out for gluttony, Proverbs says. Or Proverbs 25, 16. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill and vomit it. Never vomited honey. Seems like you'd have to eat a lot of it to vomit it. But I think he's being metaphorical here. It's like just eat what's enough. So there's another warning against what we commonly call gluttony. What's interesting to me is that for every single warning in Scripture about, let's just pick one, like same-sex uh, attraction or relations, right? There are three warnings about gluttony. But how often do we hear about gluttony versus that other sin? In churches, from Christians. Why? I think it's because we lack that definition. That's elusive. So I wanted to offer up a couple of definitions for you today to wrap your heads around what we're talking about, all right? So I went to trusty old Webster, and Webster said, um, gluttony is excess in eating or drinking. Uh, I don't know. I think Webster's being lazy here. I think Webster's being slothful in this short definition. Because <laughs> I, while I like part of it, I think gluttony is always about excess. I don't like that they limit it to eating and drinking for reasons I've already described. So I looked a little further. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the great Christian thinker from the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas said that gluttony can be boiled down to any inordinate desire. That's a little more, a little more nuanced than Webster, but still too vague, you know? Like, I like the word inordinate because that means it's out of order in terms of God's good design for us. It's outside of what he wants for us, what we're made for. But I wouldn't say that any inordinate desire is gluttony by definition because some of those inordinate desires already have other words like lust and greed and other things we've talked about so far today or, or in this series. So it's partially right. With those two definitions in mind and what else I was reading in Scripture, I came up with a little more parsed out definition of gluttony. For me, for our purposes today, in addition to those first two definitions, gluttony equals abundance without appreciation, consumption without care, and privilege without prayer. All right? So think about those things 
and what they mean. It is to sit down to one meal after another without ever giving a moment's thought to where this food came from, how many hands it passed through, how many things God made happen to make this food, this meal appear before you without even giving a moment's thought to prayer and gratitude. Have you ever gotten to that point in life where you just take it for granted? You just eat it quickly without pausing to pray and you just move on, all right? So the main thing by putting these three definitions up there that I want to get at is uh, gluttony isn't just about food. Now, it can always play a part. Y'all say a prayer for this sweet family. They are my friends, and I love you, Scott. All right, so hang in there, buddy. It's a good dad right there. Everybody give dad a round of applause. All right, thank you, dad. All right. I don't know. It's either being a good dad or he's telling his wife she needs this sermon more than he does. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Just kidding. So gluttony, um, maybe it's not exactly what we think because the signs and symptoms of suffering from gluttony are not as simple as just how someone looks or even how someone eats. You know, I think we have an image of a gluttonous person as, you know, being overweight. Some are, but a lot of gluttons are skinny. You always got to watch out for those skinny gluttons. Skinny gluttons are sneaky because skinny gluttons think they can get away with it, either because they have ridiculously high metabolism or because food isn't their vice. And a lot of skinny gluttons aren't what they appear to be. A lot of my life, I've been a skinny glutton. In my 40s, I'm becoming less so, less skinny and less gluttonous, I hope. (laughs) But it's mostly because I'm 6'4". If I was 5'4", I would look like Rosie O'Donnell, probably. But it's just the luck of the draw, I guess. It's not about how you look. It's not necessarily about uh, how, what you had to eat, you know, this morning. Although eating habits can be a sign of something else, all right? The definition I offered of gluttony can be applied to just about anything. You can be a glutton with your time. Do you take time for granted? Do you spend time without stopping to say thank you? Do you spend what limited time you have on this earth without pausing to care or to say a prayer? Do you spend your attention that God's given you, your your bandwidth in your mind and heart, your soul? Do you spend that attention on things that do not deserve your attention? Do you spend your time, your attention, your desires on objects or images or websites or whatever that, that do not deserve that level of attention since your attention is a finite resource, all right? So gluttony isn't just about how much food you eat. Gluttony, here it is. Gluttony is about your most persuasive appetites and your ability to govern them. Gluttony is about your most persuasive appetites. If I were to ask you, and if we were close friends and you felt like you could share anything with me, if I were to ask you what your most persuasive appetites are, think about this, how would you answer? It's a rhetorical question. Don't shout it out. People will laugh. But think about it in your own mind. What are your most persuasive appetites and how have they governed you instead of you governing them? 
Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 is a, a, a wonderful sort of passage about this very thing. And, and uh, if you want to uh, turn with me, you can. I'm going to just read it uh, from the screen as well. So um, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, there it is. Page 1674 in your uh, chairback Bible here in the museum district. The first thing I want you to see isn't on the parts that's on the screen. So it says, all of us who are mature, in verse 15, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. So he's, he's going to talk about gluttony in a minute, but he starts with maturity. There's a line that he can draw from maturity to gluttony. If you're mature in your faith, gluttony becomes less of a problem or a battle. In verse 19, he talks about people who have given in to gluttony. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And their mind is set on earthly things. Oof. I mean, if that doesn't step on your toes, like you're not listening, like this is us. All right? Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach or their appetites. Their, their momentary passing appetites. Their glory is in their shame, meaning the thing they are most um, gratified in or most uh, the thing they delight in the most is what really shames them, if anyone really knew, right? That's, that's a kind of hell you live in when you are a slave to gluttony. And then he says, their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. Very important line to remember there. On the 3rd of July, we get ready to celebrate our great country tomorrow. Some of you grew up in churches where Sundays on 3rd of July, man, you're singing some Lee Greenwood, uh, God Bless the USA. You're singing uh, God Bless America. You're singing something. Rolando, when I walked in, Rolando said, we're going to start with the national anthem. Is that okay? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Um, as much as I love my country and I am patriotic, we always have to remember that our citizenship as Christians, is in heaven, a higher kingdom. And we can love our country and we can go out and blow everything up tomorrow, but we still have our primary citizenship in heaven. Okay? Um, so, uh, back, to, back to gluttony here. Uh, Paul is clearly saying that uh, to be gluttonous is to be governed um, by your appetite, to, to have your stomach be your God. All right. A few years ago, there was this viral set of videos. Some of you remember them. Some of you remember them because I showed you a clip of this in a sermon because it was a requisite sermon illustration. It was too perfect. Every preacher across America used this, uh, this video of this experiment in a sermon. It was called the marshmallow experiment. You remember the marshmallow test from a few years back? Like, you couldn't be a red-blooded preacher in America and not use this. It was too perfect. It was about impulse control. And these kids were, um, it actually started back in the late 60s, early 70s. Thousands of kids were tested in this way. They were put in a room by themselves and given one marshmallow, and the test giver would say, you can eat your marshmallow now, or you can wait 15 minutes alone in this room, and I'll come back after 15 minutes. And if you haven't eaten your marshmallow, then you'll get another marshmallow. It's a tough test for anyone. I mean, I was thinking like, I don't even like marshmallows, really, unless they're roasted or something. But marshmallows are kind of gross just by themselves, I think. Imagine if it was a taco. Like, imagine if it was the taco test. How hard would that be if it was all, like, 
aromatic, it smelled good, it was hot. Like 15 minutes, a long time to wait to eat a taco. These kids were given a marshmallow. And uh, I don't know if y'all know this, but um, this was an actual scientific study over several years' time. And, and what happened is um, way more kids failed than passed. Like uh, one-third of kids actually passed the test and waited for their second marshmallow. Two-thirds of kids found it too difficult to wait, and they just went ahead and consumed that marshmallow and the whole point of the study was to show how difficult it can be to control our impulses. Now, what's interesting um, is that these researchers followed up with the same kids 10, 15, and 20 years after the tests in the late 60s and early 70s. When, during the test, they were just four, five, or six years old. And then they followed up with the same kids 10, 15, year, uh, 20 years after. And they found remarkable similarities in terms of track record and success and how they're doing in life broken down along the same one-third versus two-thirds lines. You had your self-controlled, self-governed, self-restrained uh, you know, kids doing you know, amazing things <laughs> with their lives by and large, some exceptions, but they had all graduated, a lot of them with honors, they were doing great in their jobs, they, were, they had healthier relationships, fewer of them were addicted to harmful substances and things like that. And then you had the two-thirds of more impulsive kids who not all of them, but generally as a group weren't doing as well. They were more likely to have dropped out of school, more likely to have struggled in, to get a job and keep a job, more likely to have struggled in relationships. They were more prone to addiction, depression, even suicidal ideation. And the point of the study was to show, this, it's a really interesting thing that, that all of this can be traced back to one virtue and one vice. And that there is one sin, that if you open the door to this one sin, impulsivity, a lack of self-control, whatever we're calling gluttony, then it can wreak havoc on your life in all kinds of other ways. But if you work that muscle and if you learn how to be self-governed, self-controlled, self-restrained, and if you learn that virtue and apply it to your lives, the other side of that disastrous coin is that that one virtue can take you a long way in life. Isn't that interesting? That one virtue can have ripple effects throughout the rest of your, your life and your relationships and your career and all of that. So I, I just think that's really, really interesting. Now, I'll be real with you and say if I was part of that experiment as a kid, I would have been uh, the two-thirds <laughs> group. No question about it. Impulsivity and like spontaneity, it's always been my calling card. It's been my thing. It's like... I just go where the wind takes me sometimes. I just I go with the flow, you know, and if there's a marshmallow in front of me, I'm probably going to eat it. 15 minutes, a long time to wait. They get stale and kind of hard. It's better to eat it quickly. And part of the reason I am the way that I am is because of how I was raised. I was the baby in my family. Uh, I believe that firstborn kids are more likely to be in the one-third group um, for different reasons. They're a little more responsible generally, and I was the baby in my family. I always got away with everything. If that experiment was run by my mom, it would have gone like this. Here's a marshmallow, honey. Wait 15 minutes, and I'll give you another one. But if you eat it, you can't have another one. Okay, mom. <laughs> then I would cry, and then she would give me another one. Like, that's how that worked. <laughs> now, I'm ruined, right? Maybe you feel ruined when it comes to self-control and self-restraint. 
when it comes to impulsivity and following your appetites. Maybe you feel like those ruts you've created are just too deep now. You can't stop yourself. You can't say no to those little impulses, and you can't even really figure out a reason anymore why you should say no, because, you know, it makes you a better person to, to eat the way that you do or to do the things that you do or to spend the time the way that you spend it in secret. And it makes you a more tolerable person, a less irritable person to be around. Maybe you're justifying it in your own mind. And, and that's a certain kind of hell in and of itself, is it not? Isn't that slavery? A spiritual kind of bondage? When you get to the point that uh, the things that you know you should be saying no to, you cannot say no to, and so you say yes to them in the best way possible. Of course, it's slavery. And so many of us walk around with this silent shame of defeat that no one knows about because we'll never be as self-controlled as they are, as so-and-so is. We'll never be the person the Bible calls us to be because I am me. And how do I change me after all these years? Well, the New Testament speaks to this problem in very clear ways. And it's not about modifying your behavior or figuring it out or, or one day waking up and just being more organized and put together. You've tried that and you've had about three days of success and a whole lot of failure if you're anything like me. You feel like there's no hope. Well, there is hope. It's just not within you until you have the Holy Spirit. This is what I mean from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, and then verses 22 through 25. Paul wrote, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, which means patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against those things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, the appetites, right, with its appetites, passions, desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Hey, listen, some of y'all were blessed with parents that instilled in you the principles of self-control. Congratulations. You win the marshmallow test. Others of us were not gifted and blessed in that way. I want you to know that self-control doesn't have to come from your upbringing or from your genetics or from your family background or your track record. According to the Bible, self-control comes from surrendering your life to the Holy Spirit from having a heart filled with God's spirit and letting his spirit govern you now so that you're no longer governed by the appetites and the things you used to be governed by. You're governed now by his spirit and his spirit naturally works to bring about the fruit that Paul listed in the passage from Galatians 5. The Holy Spirit will realign your desires. I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my life. As I've grown more mature in my faith, as I've surrendered more of my life to the Holy Spirit, I want different things. And I more easily reject the things that I used to go after on impulse because I have a different perspective now, not by my own doing, but by the Holy Spirit's doing within me, y'all. Some of you have the church attendance thing down. Some of you have the Bible reading thing down. You have the beliefs and practices down, but have you opened your heart to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Are you under his governance? Is he the Lord of your life on a daily basis? Do you surrender to him daily? 
I'm telling you that's where the power comes from, to push back against the gluttony that once enslaved you or maybe enslaves you now, to, to push back against the appetites that used to govern you. The more you wake up in the morning and go like, a, like an addict in recovery, just one day at a time, just for today, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Use me as you will. If you start your day like that and you get in the habit of doing that, you'll find yourself a formidable force. A formidable force in the face of the pressures and uh, temptations that used to own you. All right, and the Holy Spirit, when he indwells in us, does three things for us that... I'd like to share with you before I close. And the first is that he will give you a vision for your life that will be the overarching vision you will aspire to. A vision is a preferred future for your life. What does your preferred future look like? What is that mental image of your preferred future? Is it more of the same? What do these appetites you're living under become in 20 years? Who will you be a decade or two from now, if nothing changes. How is chasing those appetites and surrendering to those impulses affecting you and your family and your friends and your faith? Is that what you want? Of course not. But that's the vision you've been living under until the Holy Spirit comes and instills in you a new vision. Not one of slavery, but of liberty, freedom, independence that you declare daily because you're no longer subject to the impulses. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can say no, even to good things that present themselves at bad times or in bad amounts. <laughs> Some of you know exactly what I'm getting at sometimes. Saying no to good things is necessary because the vision we're aspiring to is freedom. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, I will not be enslaved to anything. And that should be one of our mottos because Jesus came to set us free. And we should be fiercely free in our daily lives, no longer subject to those whims and feelings and appetites. Second, the Holy Spirit will give you, as you surrender to him, discipline. <laughs> discipline. I almost use the word Sabbath because those two, in my mind, are interchangeable. But without discipline, you will lose sight of when is the right time to say yes and when it's not. Discipline is the ability uh, to, as Jesus said, deny yourself something and take up your cross and follow him. And the world says just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, and the scriptures would add something like, just because it's good doesn't mean you should. There is such a thing as too much of a good thing or a good thing too often. That's why discipline and Sabbath matter. And it doesn't have to be a Sunday either, because Lord knows we're not helping with our donuts and stuff down the hall. It's like, what's happening here? What kind of test is this? Is this the marshmallow test? Like, it's really not. It's inadvertent. Just a habit. <laughs> uh, but, but Sabbath will break you of that monotony and that slavery. Uh, the Sabbath that Gio and I claimed together Friday afternoon, Friday at noon to Saturday at noon. And at that point in our week, everything's different. 
We don't answer certain phone calls. We don't pick up our phones for certain reasons. We don't uh, talk about certain things. We don't fight about certain things. We are uh, a husband and a wife in love with Jesus together. Simple as that. And that kind of Sabbath is so important. And if your vice when it comes to gluttony is something particular, if it is something to do with the devices that we carry around, for example, I challenge you to take a Sabbath from your devices once a week. That's the rhythm God set us up for. And the time you have throughout the rest of the week to use your devices or whatever the vice is in your life, those times will be spent more wisely with more care because you know your Sabbath is coming again and the Sabbath will set you up for success in that way. Some of you are thinking, there's no way I could survive 24 hours without my device. If you're saying that, you need a Sabbath the most. And you can do it, I promise. The world will keep spinning and you'll be better for it. 24 hours a week of disciplined Sabbath. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't have to flee from him. Resist him and he will flee from you. Sabbath is one way that we do that. Third and finally, the Holy Spirit, when you surrender to the Holy Spirit, gives you accountability. So there's vision that he gives you, discipline that he instills in you. There's accountability, he surrounds you with. That comes in the form of community. A little over a year ago, my life fell apart in some ways. God never let me go, and uh, we, we managed and maintained, but I was... Uh, I was fired and ousted, and some of y'all remember the whole saga, but, but I was, uh, we left the United Methodist Church. We left our mother church. It was very difficult, very painful. I think it wasn't the right time. It, was, it wasn't great. It was whatever it was, y'all remember. It was very difficult. At that point in my life, I faced a crossroads moment because I could have continued to live as I was, which would not have gotten me through this new territory I was in. You understand? So I entered into a new phase of my life, and I could not continue to govern my life in a way that I was still, as if I was still in my old phase. We do that all the time, though. We try to superimpose the old habits onto this new phase. That's not how, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. And so I needed something more. And every Tuesday morning, since everything fell apart last May, just about without fail, every Tuesday morning, either in person or by Zoom, six to eight men who I hold dear, they are my brothers, especially now that we've lived this year together, uh, starting as early as 5 o'clock or 5.30 in the morning for an hour to an hour and a half. We're on our knees together physically in prayer and we're confessing our sins to each other, we're reading scriptures and saying, what would it look like to obey this scripture? And if any one of us is not on board with obedience, as far as the scripture is concerned, we don't just move on to the next week's lesson like you would in Sunday school class. We stop and we wrestle with this. We hold each other accountable until we're all on board with obedience unto God's word. That's what accountability looks like, y'all. And that, I think, is uh, what comes from real Christian community. Now, this is what is missing for most of us. If you feel like I just don't get what he's saying, I don't have what he's prescribing, it's probably a lack of accountability or a lack of intentional community in your life. And that's because not only are you facing the impulse of whatever appetites you're up against as far as gluttony is concerned, you're also facing an enemy who knows you well, an enemy whose worst nightmare is you finding yourself in real community with accountability. And he will do anything to keep you from that. 
So if it seems like just something hasn't worked, you had a small group, but they stopped meeting, and maybe they kept meeting, but you found them annoying, or you tried. Uh, three years ago, I sent an email to the church office, and nobody got back to me. And so that, that was my best effort. It's like, really? Are, are you really getting in your own way that, to that extent? Or do you want what the Holy Spirit offers, which is real accountability, real community that can bring real growth and transformation? One little caveat with that marshmallow test I mentioned earlier, they did some uh, other tests along the same lines, but with some variables. And one of the variables had to do with accountability. And instead of having each kid on their own with their marshmallow, what they did is um, paired kids up in groups of two or three. And they would either put them in the same room together, each one with a marshmallow, or they would put them in different rooms and just tell them about each other. Either way, the results were remarkable because the test went this way. Not only would you get an extra marshmallow if you waited 15 minutes, but the others in your group were depending on you to wait 15 minutes and you were depending on them. And whereas before, when it was a solitary test, the success rate was about one third. When it became a communal test, where there was more than one kid depending on each other, right? The success rate grew to over 80%. Something happens to us when we know there are people who are depending on us and people we're depending on. We, we rise up to the occasion. And whenever they were in the same room together, the success rate was over 90%. So something additional happens when we share the same space. Uh, even though those are just kids in that study, I think it applies to us all, all right? This is the power of community and accountability. And uh, this is a passage that I think applies to this. 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul, the Christian leader says, I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So if you're a part of this church or a part of a group of Christians, it's not just you and Jesus. It's you and us in Jesus. And there's a community of people here who will benefit from you thriving in the Holy Spirit and your life in the Spirit. And you will benefit from holding others to account in their life in the Holy Spirit. Spirit. This is the power of self-control. Self-control is the antidote to gluttony. I pray that you'll embrace self-control as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'll, I'll put this before you once more. If you're hesitant or resistant to making a change today in terms of how you respond to your momentary appetites and desires, What's your plan? Where do you see this going? Without a Holy Spirit intervention, who will you become? God made you for something higher than just that uh, cynical, frustrated, self-loathing person that gluttony so often turns us into. He created you to be a shining light, a beacon of hope to the world around you, and he can make that happen from the inside out by the power of his spirit. And so have you invited the Holy Spirit 
to be in your heart, governing you, to indwell you? Have you welcomed the Holy Spirit? Or are you just sort of talking the talk without walking the walk? If you've yet to invite the Holy Spirit into your life, or if it's been a while since you've communicated with God in this way, I just invite you to pray with me now. And if, if you're tracking with me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, you live in the Spirit every day. Join me in prayer for someone around you right now. If you're over at Timber Grove or online, I invite you all to pray with me as well. Lord, forgive us for the ways we've chased after and fallen prey to our impulses and appetites. God, help us uh, to see uh, with a new vision what our preferred future in you looks like. It's not just more of the same. It's not just the same cycles and patterns playing out where we have the same downfalls and disappointments. There's something better your Holy Spirit has in store for us. Lord, help us to trust it. We confess that one of the things that happens to us over time as we give in to gluttony is just more cynicism, nihilism. It doesn't really matter if we consume this or how much or when we consume it because we're all just gonna die. So eat, drink, and be merry, Lord. That's how this sin wreaks havoc on our souls. Lord, free us. Free us from that toxic mentality to live freely by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.